video. Do you want to hit record your side as well? Hit. Yep, we're all good to go. Right, excellent. Today's guest is none other than Marty Bent, host of uh, Tales from the Crypt. Everybody here has probably listened uh, to his podcast, knows him very well. Uh, welcome, Marty. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Really excited to uh, sit down and chat. Can can we get the 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 caca? Let's. Uh... <laughs> what animal is it that, that you are doing there? I, I've been racking my brain. It's uh, it's actually a, a weed-starved human call. Uh, it was actually backstory behind the caca. Okay. I, uh, <laughs> I wasn't expecting. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> Family parties when I was younger in college. Um, my cousins who would uh, smoke marijuana, uh, we try to sneak out of uh, of that of the family party, and that would be our call. A little ticky, and we'd know to meet in the backyard to smoke a bowl. <laughs> so. All right, now I know that that's that's. Been, I, I thought it was a peacock or something. I'm like, why is he starting with a peacock? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, do you, do any of your like uh, old buddies and friends and cousins, whoever it was, you just from those family parties, did they listen to the pod and just piss themselves every time you throw that down? Yeah, yeah, they get a good laugh out of it. Um, <laughs> people who who know who know about it. Yeah, it took on a life of its own outside of the family parties too. So. That's uh, brought it to the podcast as well. Oh, that's awesome. Well, th there you go. And um, y you call all the listeners freaks, right? What, what's, the, uh, what's the story behind that? Um, yeah, it was just freaks to be in the Bitcoin. You have to be a little weird, at least uh, in most people's eyes. And for my newsletter, The Bent, um, I really approached that when I first started out with trying to make it more approachable. Uh, make Bitcoin more approachable and uh, the way I attempt to do that is uh, sort of have a um, a voice that is is not well more welcoming what's the word I'm looking for like uh, it's uh, less less uh, polished and it's uh, it sort of gets people's guard down uh, and, and lets them know like hey I'm a normal person like you I'm a freak like you uh, this stuff's interesting to me too so um, again, really just trying to develop a, a voice and uh, a way of writing that is, is more approachable uh, than your average technical Bitcoin coverage. Do you think that's still the case? Do you think we, we, we are still freaks? Uh, are we like, it's, I mean, I know we're still in the minority, but are people still a little too afraid to talk about it to like uh, friends uh, and family? Uh, no, I think definitely people are more more comfortable, but still uh, the, the endeavor to replace central banks with a peer-to-peer -peer distributed cryptocurrency is still a bit crazy to, to uh, your, your layman. Yeah, for sure. So, and how, like over the years, well, actually, right, let's go back. What, what's, um, what led you to Bitcoin? Because you and I are we're, we're definitely different ages. I'm I'm up in uh, the early forties. You're you're down in the uh, the late twenties. Late twenties. Okay. Yeah, late twenties. I'm twenty eight. So when 
did you first start um, hearing about Bitcoin? And, uh, you know, where were you? Um, I was in Chicago in college. Uh, it was probably about 2012, 2013. I was studying economics um, at DePaul University. And I, I, I forget exactly how I found it, um, but I'm pretty sure um, I was studying. Again, I was studying economics and just looking up, literally Googling uh, monetary policy on the internet just to do some research on my own. I think I stumbled upon Bitcoin in that way. Some nerds uh, talking about Bitcoin's uh, unique monetary properties um, just by falling down a, a Googling rabbit hole. Uh, and I'm pretty sure news around Silk Road definitely um, pushed me into the rabbit hole further. So while I was in college, I was studying economics, working at a, a managed futures fund um, where I was had to follow currency markets, which in turn meant I had to follow central bank policy around the world and understand what they were doing. And uh, while I was doing that in parallel, I was studying Bitcoin. It was like, hey, uh, after realizing that the central bankers didn't really have too much, um, too much idea of exactly what they were doing, uh, I decided uh, to focus on Bitcoin more and more throughout the years. So let, let's talk about university then um, and education and whether or not like studying economics, obviously, and then coming out the other side of it and falling down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and, you know, going down Austrian economic rabbit holes. What are your thoughts now on like the economics that you were taught back in, um, back in the classroom and the fact that that is probably still the course? Yeah, no, I was definitely indoctrinated with uh, your uh, mainstream neoliberal Keynesianism. Um, learned a lot about the Laffer curve and, uh, and monetary policy as a tool to uh, to basically dictate, or not dictate, but to sort of push economic activity one direction or another. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I... I really got introduced to Austrian economics and um, and the more conservative views of economics, I think via publications like Zero Hedge. And then again, working at the fund, um, there were there were some thinkers who um, were not really, uh, not really in line with what the Fed was putting out there. So I definitely had some mentors who, who pushed me in the direction of Austrian economics, but yeah my four years spent studying economics at university were definitely, um, definitely Keynesian heavy sort of pushing that view as, as the way of the world and the way it should work. It will work moving forward. Um, it wasn't much, uh, conflicting. There weren't, I mean, it was just one school of thought, thought, uh, you think you study economics, you should have a well-rounded view of, uh, the whole subject, not just one view of it. Um, and that's something that, that became more apparent to me uh, as, uh, again, I was working and studying at the same time. So blogs like Zero Hedge um, really um, helped me get an alternative view when it come, or alternative uh, school of thought in economics and then the Mises Institute as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember giving presentations uh, on student debt and um, the, the uh, problems of runaway inflation and 
was actually teaching some professors um, some things because uh, they were just so stuck in the in the mindset of of the neoliberal neoliberal excuse me way of doing things. Man, um, there, there's something weird with the sound there. I'll just uh, edit that um, this part out. But uh, do you hear any knocking? I'm not hearing any knocking. No. No, was it just there? What was that? Oh, it's not your chair, maybe. Is it? Is it my desk, that, maybe? Yeah, that, that, whatever that was. Something just. Were you leaning on your desk, maybe? Yeah, I'll sit back. And... Right. Okay. Although then, um, yeah, the, the the sounds not as great as it was before. Uh... Let me see. Is this is better. Yeah, I think can you hear so. Me now? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, there we go. I think that right. should be better. What did you do there? I switched it to my AirPods. I was speaking through my uh, right. speaking through my desktop. It seems like. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. That's better. Um, but de- yeah, there was definitely like a creaking. I think it must have been a creaking. Um, yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. I thought I was going crazy. All right. Cool. Um, so. What would you like, what would you say then to somebody that's going into or, or considering going into study univer uh, study university study economics and spend all this money? Is this something like I mean, how much is it these days in in the U.S.? Could you help us out? I, I don't know exactly. Um, yeah, I think all in with uh, room and board, books and stuff. Uh, College I went to, DePaul University, has got to be upwards of $35,000 a year, probably more at this point. Um, your high end, the Georgetown University, I remember when I was in college, I think that was the most expensive uh, tuition out there. And that's uh, six, seven years ago now at this point. And it was $55,000 a year, again, six, seven years ago. So uh, I can only imagine where that is now. Um, I mean, even your public state schools are <clears throat> getting up above uh, like twelve to fifteen thousand dollars, where they're historically been pretty cheap. I remember Rutgers was, I think, like seven or eight thousand dollars a year when I was in college. Had a bunch of friends go there, so um, yeah, it's pretty. I mean, it's pretty great. It's pretty crazy. Uh, the the cost of, of basically getting a degree that you're told you need to get. Uh, if you want to be successful in the real world, um, you're basically being forced to, well, not forced to, nobody's being forced to do anything, but <clears throat> socially you're pressured to uh, go into this debt if you want to be a quote unquote successful uh, member of the workforce. Yeah, I'd almost use the term you're being gamed into debt, I think would be a yeah. good term. Definitely. And that- so, yeah, it's like a, it's a social engineering type thing. And that's crazy. So like <laughs> to go and study economics, you, you like the, the first thing you got to understand uh, out of three or four years, you're going to come out 200 grand down, maybe more. Potentially. Yeah. Depending on where you go. And then um, I was lucky enough to only come out with uh, a couple, I think 20,000, <clears> $20,000 in debt. Um, which I'm still paying paying back, but uh, even that for for somebody a 21, 22 year old on uh, a base salary out of college is depending on what industry you're in is not not easy to pay back, especially with the interest rates and um, 
and all that stuff. No, exactly, man. How did we get to this point? All right. So, and then, so you, you do leave university, you go find a job, you, you, um, into finance. Is that correct? Yeah. So I was working at a fund junior and senior year of college, uh, senior year. I took a lot of night classes and would work uh, a lot during the week again, cause I learned more at the fund than I did in school. Um, and then for a year after college, I continued to work at the fund, uh, but decided to, to leave finance in 2014. Cause, uh, uh, I don't, I'm like very anti-authority and I don't like, I don't like the cube life. Um, and a lot of finance, uh, is, is the cube life. You're stuck in a cube looking at Excel spreadsheets doing the same things day in and day out. And just for, for the type of person I am, it wasn't for me. With that being said, like I love the people I work with and, um, again, learned an incredible amount. I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity and experience that I did working for the fund that I did. But at the end of the day, just, uh, my personality did not mesh well with the, the, the lifestyle khakis slacks. Um, and so I decided to quit. And at, uh, at that time, I mean, tech is, was huge and blowing up and Silicon Valley was becoming more and more popular. So I left to sort of understand what was going on with app and uh, sort of tech development and took a digital design bootcamp to, to understand that world a little bit better, hoping uh, to combine my experience in economics and uh, eventually that, that experience in design and development to, to get a new job in a new industry. So I think that there's definitely a bit of a misconception for, for many people thinking about, you know, following the path into finance and it's so exciting and fast paced and, you know, it's really well paid. Could you give us an idea of like your day to day, um, what like you would be doing? Um, so people can yeah. kind of understand exactly what it is like in the walls of one of these funds. So basically, first of all, what, you know, explain what is a fund? Um, so the fund I worked for, I worked for a managed futures fund and we were a fund of funds. So uh, we were a specific type of fund with a specific type of investment strategy. Managed futures funds predominantly uh, made up of what's called commodity trading advisors. Uh, they're not your typical hedge fund where they're taking an insane amount of risk and um, trying to produce insane returns. Managed futures particularly uh, likes to market itself as a portfolio hedge. Uh, like uh, so, we trade a lot of a lot of gold currencies, and uh, basically, uh, managed futures funds will fight for like three to five percent of uh, people's portfolios. Just again, as as um, a sort of catastrophe hedge, or heavy gold commodities, um, things like that. Um, so the fund that I was working for is very uh, not niche, but very specific, and with very specific investment goals. And again. Uh, we were a fund of funds, so we were a managed futures fund that indexed CTA traders. Um, uh, so we, across, I believe, when I was there, across a family of three funds, we we uh, mix and match up to twenty CTAs and other similar trading uh, funds. And so my day to day as an analyst, um, I worked for a small portfolio management team, consisted our of our chief investment officer, uh, portfolio manager above me and then myself. So we were a three-man team in the small fund. And my day basically uh, consisted of, depending on what type of the week it is, you have 
um, sort of investment meetings on Monday, going over strategy, uh, talking about how the fund was performing, how markets are performing. Um, every day to pull, the first thing I would do is pull data from Bloomberg and get our NAV and send out the, the daily uh, report to our investors. Um, so uh, basically laying out a code in MATLAB and pull data from sources uh, and then send out an email with our fund performance of the day before. Um, then I wrote weekly commentaries as well. So uh, I believe we got those out uh, Thursday or, or we got those out Monday morning, but I would start writing them Thursday or Friday. Um, and so some of my weeks was spent writing those commentaries and that consisted of uh, pulling data on how markets moved, uh, seeing how our fund uh, moved in relation to those movements and then sort of explaining what happened. Uh, and then uh, another big chunk of the week was spent doing research, um, basically having funds come in and pitch their strategies to us. And so asking them what their risk profiles are, what their trading strategies are, uh, depending on uh, whether or not they were um, momentum traders, trend followers, uh, many different strategies within managed futures alone. Um, and then uh, on top of that, since we were an index fund, I had to um, get um, commentary from the funds we were invested in. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of phone calls and, and meetings with the investment officers of the hedge or the CTAs that we were uh, invested in, sort of getting uh, their view on the markets and why their funds were performing the way they were. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, it's a heavy due diligence um, lift, especially for fund of funds. So literally uh, going through prospectuses and creating due diligence documents for our investors just to uh, have them uh, give them peace of mind and check off compliance boxes, regulatory boxes uh, that we had actually made sure that the funds that we were invested in uh, were, tr were trading uh, according to their investment strategies correctly, uh, that they had servers on site that could, um, that could actually handle uh, the trading that they were doing, uh, that they had backup plans and contingency plans for any disaster um scenarios and, and a bunch of other stuff like that wow that was a busy week yeah yeah and it varied <laughs> from week to week depending on what what time of the week month and quarter it was so just uh, a few acronyms if you wouldn't mind clearing up but what uh, cta what do you mean by that commodity trading advisor um so they're funds that trade specific markets commodities so grains uh uh, energy, uh, so, uh, metals, currency markets, uh, equities and treasury futures and stuff like that. And uh, NAV, would you mind uh, telling the listeners, um, you know, when you're sending out the NAV, what, what that exactly is? Uh, the net asset value. So basically where you're, so funds have a ticker with an NAV um, depending on uh, how it's trading that's uh, um, going to basically it's the price of, of what your fund is on the market cool so this is like a great background for you like that to to learn all kinds of different markets 
and speak to all kinds of different players within those markets, whether they're um, traders, advisors, uh, consultants, um, hedge fund operators, uh, fund people like yourself. So now that that's kind of like a, a piece of the puzzle is falling into place for me when you can speak so eloquently about markets with, with some of your guests, like a Bitcoin Tina, for example, that, um, you know, you guys can sit there and just talk about markets. Uh, so here yeah, we are. No, I mean, I was, <laughs> yeah. I was are we calling it Black Monday or not? Like it, it, what's, uh, what's the word? What's the word on Wall Street? You're, you're close to Wall Street, I believe. <laughs> Um, I'm close to Wall Street, but I, I really don't have too many connections on Wall Street anymore <laughs> in a professional um, capacity. But I mean, yeah, people, I've been watching CNBC all day. Mm. It's the first time in a while, just sort yep. of to see what um, what the, uh, the media is saying about it. And they're having uh, uh, the fund managers and a lot of people from the oil industry, oil and gas industry make the rounds. So uh, I've been hearing what they've been saying. Um, yeah, and it's, it's an unprecedented market. I believe the the bond trader or the, the head of JP Morgan bond portfolio was on saying that the 30 year didn't even have a bid um, at one point overnight last night, which is the first time he's ever seen that in his history um, and his experience in the market. So yeah, it does seem like a, a very uh, one-off type of situation that we're going through right now. I mean, you have uh, the whole yield curve in the U.S. at least under one percent, which is pretty insane. Yeah, that's crazy. And this is uh, like your 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 last episode last week, late with uh, Bitcoin Tina. You guys got into this, and um, where do you where do you like? <laughs> what can they do? Like the the next yeah. meetings when? Like uh, we are the ninth. I think it's the seventeenth. Yeah, it starts the 17th and the announcements will come out the 18th. Um, yeah, so they've, yeah, maybe they've got, a, they've got three options. They don't do anything, um, which I find unlikely. Uh, they cut rates significantly more alone or they cut rates and uh, announce uh, money printing or expansion of the monetary base for technical. Um, and it's the question in the air is how many of these tools does the Fed want to blow through in one meeting? Um, because they're sort of already backed in the corner where, with where rates are at the moment. Uh, they weren't able to raise them past a certain rate um, well, yeah. uh, after if 08. You, if you can explain to like listeners that there was an emergency meeting last week where they cut mm -hmm. 50 basis points, which has literally done nothing to stem the the flow of red on the stock markets so like, yeah and how significant was that how significant is an emergency meeting uh it's pretty significant uh very significant i would say i mean depends on who you ask but the fact that they had to come out uh was it tuesday morning it was a monday morning. i think it was tuesday morning um and cut again by 50 bips down to Again, they target when you say cut, they cut their their target uh, to a range. And I believe it's between right now one percent and one point two five percent. So they um, they did that in hopes, or excuse me, they did that. I think because uh, that night over, or excuse me, the night before in the repo markets, they were oversubscribed by fifty percent, and um, 
they they basically injected 120 billion dollars of short-term liquidity into the banking system um to me that that means that something's wrong somewhere uh and so yeah they had to come out and cut by 50 bips in hopes that they would they would sort of quell fears in the interbanking system and like you said it had a pretty weak uh weak effect on the markets as uh i think there was maybe like five minutes of rally after the initial announcements and then it just kept plummeting after that it's been plummeting um uh pretty aggressively over the weekend too so yeah that's the question is what are they going to do um i mean uh, where i mean the street is basically um expecting them to cut pretty significantly uh, whether they go to zero right away or um, leave some room above the x-axis is, is the big question right now hmm. and yeah we're the crazy ones for looking at bitcoin right we're the freaks so <laughs> what and of course, the the Bitcoin price has, has been following the the markets down as well. What what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts around that? Um, yeah, so it's it's a it's I think it's a product of what's going on in the markets, um, and that's probably why uh, repo markets are oversubscribed, in my opinion. Um, is there's a need to um, finance leverage trades. And since coronavirus and now um, Russia basically telling OPEC to go fuck itself, uh, hitting the markets, um, a lot of things have changed. Supply chain particularly has been ground to a halt with the global supply chain because of all the quarantines and mainly because China's shutting down for uh, over a month now at this point. Um, and those ripple effects are starting to blow through the economy and um that was actually the uh, rumors about the repo spasm in um september of last year was that the so the way it works is the repo repo markets basically anybody who has access to the fed fed windows which is which are entities called primary dealers which are made up mostly of banks um, that led money from there um they had a liquidity crisis in September, or excuse me, they had a short-term funding crisis in September, and the Fed had to step in and provide funding. Um, and the rumors um, actually coming from the BIS, the uh, Bank of International Sett Settlements, it's like the big, the big boss um, in the world. Uh, uh, they came out in November and said that uh, the, the cause for the short-term funding crunch was levered hedge funds. Um, so I imagine uh, this is sort of a continuation of of that uh, uh, need for margin funding uh, by these hedge funds, and they're getting that by taking loans out from the bank. Um, so as we've had coronavirus start to affect the markets, and now uh, Russia walking away from OPEC, um, not that they were a part of OPEC, they had sort of a, a deal that they would they would play ball with them for a while there um that uh seems that those uh trades are going south and so they need more funding uh to make sure that they don't get margin called and liquidated um and uh, that's why i believe uh that could be I, I don't i don't like to call out exact reasons for why bitcoin price moves in one direction or another but it would make sense that if um 
traders uh, needed liquidity to cover margin. Um, they would pull it from Bitcoin first. And I think we've actually seen CME volume fall pretty pretty drastically since all these, these spasms started happening too, um, which would conf confirm that in my mind. Um, yeah, and then on top of that, you have rumors of the plus token scam actually liquidating some of their holdings as well. So that's probably not helping either. Plus token, what's, uh, wh what's that? <laughs> Fill us in on uh, plus token. So plus token, uh, I'm not the most knowledgeable source on this particular topic, but from what I understand it was um, a Ponzi scheme in China where the, the operators of, of what's called the plus token scam basically got a bunch of Chinese citizens to send them Bitcoin uh, and they were promising big returns and guaranteed returns and just turned out to be a huge exit scam. I think they got hundreds of thousands of Bitcoin or tens of thousands of Bitcoin. I forget the exact number, but uh, there's been some teams doing chain analysis to follow uh, the plus token coins. And it seems that they've been liquidating more on the Chinese exchange for uh recently. So as they're trying to cash out their exit scan, that can certainly hurt the price as well. Man. God damn it. Huddle, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's why we huddle. <laughs> to, to avoid yeah, this I mean, kind of crap. That huddle, and that, yeah, I mean, that's the ethos of stacking sets, too. It's like, that's why I said the bent today. Like, I, I wholeheartedly believe that we're in the middle of one of the biggest inflection points in human history as we transition into the digital age, sort of starting to see. I mean, I think I believe it started earnestly in 2008, but it's becoming more pronounced now that uh, sort of there's a crisis of confidence in the institutions that sort of ruled the day in the industrial age. And uh, I believe people are starting to sort of wake up to how messed up things are and will naturally seek alternatives. And I believe that Bitcoin will be one of the alternatives that people turn to uh, in the, in the digital age and um, the fundamentals of Bitcoin are stronger than ever, in my opinion. And um, despite what's going on in traditional markets, um, in stock markets and stuff like that. Uh, and even the Bitcoin, the short-term Bitcoin price movements. I just think fundamentally long-term that Bitcoin is somewhat inevitable. And so that's why the stacking sats mentality is like, hey, if you've got um, some extra funds that you're willing to put into Bitcoin as a savings vehicle for the long-term and just buy consistently and at a good pace, don't overextend yourself. Um, that's one thing that should be mentioned. Do not overextend yourself. Don't go into crazy amounts of debt to do this. The timing is nobody knows for sure what the timing of this will be. It could take decades. Um, but uh, if you're gainfully employed, have enough um, income and then savings and other uh, in like dollars, or whatever, and then yeah, stacking stats makes no sense to me. Um, I, yeah, I actually like to see the price fall a bit. Um, at times like these, because if it starts jumping, you're gonna be pissed off that you didn't stack enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, spoken by a, a true stacker and hodler, you know, you, you, you're glad to see when the price is down. I get, uh, you know, I, I get pissed off when I see the price price up. 
like, no, just hang on another few years. Please, just bounce <laughs> around here. Just move sideways. Um, give us some more time. Not, not just me, but give everybody some more time. Like, you know, the, the people that are going to tune in and listen to your podcast and read these books that people are putting out on the market now. We need more time uh, for, for more people to, to start understanding. Yes, that and um, through conversations with developers or with developers working on Bitcoin, the protocol, um, it needs more time to uh, be fleshed out as well. Um, there's still a lot of uh, things that a lot of nice to haves that we would like to have at the protocol level. And um, I've spoken to some developers recently who think the uh, the pace of the price growth is actually indexing well with the um the uh the um excuse me the development at the protocol level uh sort of pacing nicely with what the protocol can handle uh, and that's the other thing the protocol uh will naturally sort of create an equilibrium of people who come into the network and we saw that in 2017 uh when the exchanges couldn't handle everybody that was trying to buy fees went up and um i think people um basically uh were driven away from bitcoin for a little bit because uh, the protocol just simply wasn't ready for for the masses and the infrastructure around the protocol too and how much has changed since then that that's that that's the crazy thing that if we if people still don't think we're ready the amount of development that has happened in the last three years is crazy yeah yeah i mean at the protocol level nothing i mean things have just been getting more efficient uh ibds are getting better um the growth of the chain state has been getting the growth rate of the chain state uh chain state has been uh slowing down which is good to see uh on top of that uh right at the end of 2017 segway got activated and since then uh it's been more widely adopted which is good because it uh, enables uh, people to do things like use the lightning network and then obviously the lightning networks uh, been created and built out since then as well which is helping to uh, push some activity to a second layer to help um, reduce usage on uh, the protocol level uh, and then on top of that you have um, better infrastructure better open source projects i think btc pay server is uh one of the the best things to come out of this bear market um it's the fact that it's now easy for merchants to download a software and receive and hold bitcoin in a self-sovereign way without having to go through a third party is, is a huge plus too and will aid in um bringing on the masses in the what i would deem a, a correct way moving forward right all right, so let's get on to um, the world of a podcaster, which is uh, something I'm interested in, <laughs> something pretty new to me. Um, how did you, like, so, so you left your work in, uh, in finance, um, you, you went and uh, looked um, further afield in technology, and somehow weaved your way into becoming um, like one of the more dominant podcasters in the Bitcoin space. How on earth did, did you find that? And um, can you share any absolute 
disaster stories, early days that you're willing to share with the, with the listeners? Um, yeah, I mean, I stumbled into it. I was actually forced to do the podcast, not forced to, but um, somebody highly encouraged me to do the podcast. I wasn't even thinking, or I was thinking of it, but never really would have had the, uh, the gumption to make it happen myself if I was not pushed into it. So I started the newsletter um, as a means to teach my family and friends who were bugging me about Bitcoin, uh, about Bitcoin, and I feel like texting and emailing them individually. So I said, hey, I'm going to start this newsletter read this, I'll send it to you guys every day and sort of uh, inoculate you with a little bit of Bitcoin knowledge every day. And then that took on a life of its own. And somebody at uh, formerly worked at a company here in the States called Barstool Sports sort of noticed it. And uh, we wound up meeting for drinks to talk about Bitcoin and, and the whole space in the summer of 2017. Uh, Lewis Roberts is his name and he's sort of the reason the podcast exists. He's uh, Barstool was a budding podcast network at the time. And they're one of the biggest in the world now. Um, he sort of saw the uh, emergence of podcasting and how it was going to blow up. And he convinced me that it would be a good idea to start Tales from the Crypt. Um, so we started that in September of 2017. And uh, it was sort of an extension of the newsletter. I talked a lot about uh, developers building certain stuff in the space and uh, people like Pierre Richard um, writing some timeless uh, content about Bitcoin's monetary properties and decided that to reach out to them and bring them in to sort of spread the word of Bitcoin. And yeah, so it took on a life of its own. Uh, horror stories and not too many actually too many horror stories uh, sometimes i've messed up audio which is always um annoying and uh pretty terrible um it's a pretty terrible feeling when you mess up the audio you just feel like you wasted somebody's time um but i guess not a horror story but a funny story is the first couple of episodes i literally wrote down and scripted so I, I read the first couple of episodes i read from a piece of paper like i didn't know i had no idea how to do a podcast um, I'd spent like three weeks prepping for the first two episodes, which is the history of Bitcoin. And it's just me reading from a script of flashcards that, that I'd wrote over the course of a few weeks. And um, if you listen to it, I'm a little out of breath and didn't really know how to pace myself or anything like that. Uh, it's truly a raw experience. Um, and then I guess one horror story is one time I posted an episode where I'd lined up two different audio streams and uh, didn't realize that I didn't um, didn't hit stop record on one recorder, and a little bit of a, a conversation that happened after that leaked on to uh, the audio that got on Anchor, and I was giving somebody my Wi-Fi password. So um, <laughs> until people sort of hit me up on Twitter, like, "Yo, I know your Wi-Fi password." I was like, "Oh <laughs> crap!" So I had to change that, um, which is very, very. Um, very bad look for for a bitcoiner who's who's conscious about obsec. Yeah. <laughs> and like, when when you when you interview so many guests, like, do, do you get off like uh, somebody calls just like energized? Like, what the hell did I just listen to? I got to go stack some sats. This thing is just like crazy. Yeah, no, I I, I try to do most of my 
interviews in person because I just think uh, I like looking people in the eye and being able to read inflection um, uh, in person. And we tend to uh, enjoy drinks too, which uh, helps helps the truth serum come out. And it is truth serum and helps the truth come out. It's too uh, early for you yeah. there, right? Uh, it wouldn't be, uh, I mean, it's 9.15 for me. I could go crack a beer. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, it's 4.15 here. Wouldn't be, wouldn't be frowned upon, but it's Monday. <laughs> my, my water with lemon. Next time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, they're definitely, I mean, a lot. I mean, uh, being here in New York, I'm blessed to be able to speak to some some bitcoiners that uh are doing some incredible stuff so i've had the pleasure of sitting down with john newberry a few times matt Carallo, james o'byrne um uh pierre richard and just hearing them speak about what they're working on and how they describe bitcoin is yeah it's just natural dopium excuse me hopium not hopium uh, dopamine excuse me mixing the two <laughs> words there. natural dopamine hit um via conversation uh, so yeah, I definitely walked out of the studio, jacked up, market buying, uh, sats. I do the same. <laughs> it's, uh, it's hard not to, especially when, um, people that you've, you've listened to so much in the past and respect their views and then they come on and they give up their time and they speak with you personally. And then you get to see like, like you say, what, you know, how they're saying it. You're like my god like this is it's infectious it's mad yeah no i particularly think of the first episodes i did with pierre and we just sat down for three hours drinking wine and he was able to distill uh bitcoin its engineering uh, mentality and its importance uh, from a monetary perspective uh, very clearly and uh, that's the conversation I still am. It was happening, geez, like two and a half years ago at this point. I still replay it in my head sometimes because, again, I think that's the way he distilled uh, Bitcoin from an economic and development perspective in that episode, in those series of episodes, uh, was so clear and has really helped uh, me create a mental framework for how to approach this, particularly on the development side. Him explaining how. Uh, Bitcoin engineers approach Bitcoin the way uh, Linux was approached, creating um, very modular tools that work well and do do one or very few things very well, and they just work. Um, really helped a light bulb go off in my head. And the um, your co-host Matt Odell and the the rabbit hole uh, recap. Do you guys? How much prep do you guys do for that, or do you just sit down and like right? Have you seen what's been going on? Like, bam, 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 bam. We've, like, there's a whole episode. We don't have enough time. This, this yeah. space is moving so quick. Like, how do, you, how do you get around that? Yeah, so we'll collaborate on a list before Matt comes over to record. Uh, Matt makes up most of the list, and then if I see any topics or notice any topics that he doesn't have the list, I'll be like, hey, we should talk about this list and this too. Um, and, yeah, I mean, we both read – uh, or try to at least read everything that's on the list before he comes over um, and then just shoot the shit about it um, and sort of give our perspective on what's going on in the space. And yeah, that's been, that shows almost a year and a half old now. Yeah. A year and a half. Um, 
so it's been crazy doing that uh with him and that's taken on a life of its own and yeah it's somebody else who early on came on the podcast and I learned immense amount of uh from and somebody I'm very fortunate to be able to uh talk Bitcoin with on a weekly basis I learn a lot from him yeah for sure we all do we all do because we are uh, yeah there's many of us listening to it well what um I, I asked this question to, to all the guests towards the end of the show and I, I want to get like your thoughts on who is there who's the one person that you'd love to come out and talk to about Bitcoin or if you could educate that person and then they would go and share that knowledge with their audience um, who, you know, could we reach a far wider audience than you and I could ever dream of? Who would that be and why? Um, I want to talk to Nassim Taleb. Um, I'm a huge fan of Inserto. I mean, he already knows about Bitcoin. He wrote the forward to the Bitcoin standard. Um, I think he sort of understands uh, Bitcoin from the perspective of the intolerant minority. But uh, I am just a huge fan of his work. Actually, funny story. I was able to, uh, one of my wife and I got married we went over to Spain for two weeks. Um, and he happened to be in Spain the same two weeks. We were in Sevilla, Madrid. And I could see on Twitter that he was in Sevilla, Madrid at the same time. And the whole, uh, the whole trip, I was like, ah, maybe we're going to run into him. Uh, and we'll have some squidding pasta together. And that was sort of the running joke of our trip. And then never happened while we were in Spain. But then we flew back to JFK. I'm waiting at baggage claim, looking like a total slob. Uh, and he's standing right next to me. And I was like, oh my God. So I went and introduced myself. Actually, I actually had Black Swan in my bag as well. Um, but yeah, no, I think I would love to sit down and have a conversation with him. Uh, just about, definitely talk about Bitcoin, touch on Bitcoin, but um, really randomness of the world, uh, barbell uh, trading strategies, uh, information asymmetry and emergent complex systems because that's one thing he really helped me understand is that systems are complex and they're emergent and it's something uh, most people in the world have gotten away from and don't understand in today's day and age which is i think a um a, a product of a lot of the problems we have is just a complete misunderstanding or excuse me uh, it is the core of a lot of the problems we have uh, the product is the problem is that we don't understand um, complex systems and and humans, particularly central authorities like central bankers and federal governments try to micromanage complex systems when it's really not possible. <laughs> so you're on your honeymoon in Sevilla, <laughs> stalking another dude, which is... <laughs> I wasn't stalking him. I was saying, hey, it would be great if we ran into him. <laughs> I wasn't, well, go- I wasn't out there looking for him. <laughs> that would be ace just going from tapas bar to tapas bar to tell let's try this one honey come on let's <laughs> yeah i like it here yeah, it right now. Well, it. <laughs> which reminds me actually um that's the first time i reached out to you on twitter it was your episode a while back now when you had um trace on and you guys were mm-hmm. talking about um like disintegration of the family and uh what and you had some interesting thoughts around around that um yeah do you just want to you know what do you feel is happening and um what what do you think um needs to happen to to kind of put a stop to that rut 
yeah, I think there is like a, a natural market driven disintegration of the family, the nuclear family, particularly um, because of the way our economy works, the growth at all costs mindset of the economy has forced both parents into the workforce. Um, sometimes one or both working more than one job. Uh, this leads to less time at home with your children. Um, and then uh, that has proven to have adverse effects to the future of those children. Um, and then on top of that, uh, it's causing people to forego family form formation altogether because they, they don't believe they have enough money to afford a family. Um, so I, I think that's terribly bad for society and the long-term survival of our species. Uh, I think we do need to return to a sound money system that would allow individuals and more importantly families to preserve capital without having to worry about it being inflated away so that families can be more tight-knit and uh, stronger at the end of the day. And Bitcoin fixes this? Yes, it does. I think it does at least. Uh, helps people lower their time preference and, uh, and forces them to make lower time preference decisions, which leads to, to more capital accumulation, which leads to uh, a higher likelihood that you'll be able to raise a quality family, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's just having that uh, that safety net for the future, right? Um, being, you know, the, the ability to have the ability to save which people of your age just you just haven't had that ability right it's just not been i mean as soon as you what's the highest interest rate you've seen on a bank account like you personally for your money for your savings uh, um for oh shit like I, like i think when i started bank i opened a bank account when i was 16 i think the highest i ever saw was maybe two percent no maybe two and a half. Man. There's a whole generation of kids that just have not ever been given this opportunity. And like, that's why I get angry when people like um, start talking about like millennial generation being uh, lazy and entitled and all this kind of bullshit. And it is bullshit. Um, it's just and like, <laughs> how yeah, can you say? I mean, you're coming out, so you like you right right back at the beginning of the show. You're coming out of education with debt, and that's horrible, horrible feeling. The anxiety hanging over that is just really, really like crippling, and pushes you into a corner to go grab any kind of job that you can get, just because that's a wage coming in. But then you can't like you can't accrue capital after that unless you're taking risk. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I did take risks with Bitcoin, but I did treat it as a savings account uh, right after college, and it's paid off well for me. Um, I know people like some people are uh, are bashing people who say Bitcoin's a good savings technology, but it has helped me preserve capital and actually grow my capital um, over time. Obviously, we're going through a very uh, aggressive monetary. Um, monetization excuse me uh, experience with bitcoin bitcoin is uh, just going through a price discovery phase which has uh, been up into the right since i've been in so definitely benefited from that but i don't expect that to stop anytime soon and i still treat it uh, as a savings account as a savings vehicle uh, and 
yeah, it's helped me save a lot more money than some of my friends. Uh, and, and again, it's a combination of the, the price appreciation and um, sort of lowering my time preference and deciding to dump money in Bitcoin instead of do other things like go out and drink till 4 a.m. <laughs> right. But it's interesting to hear you say that because uh, I, I had another young guy on the show um, at Checkmatey and he, you know, the way he said, like the first, the first thing he ever invested in was Bitcoin. You know, yeah, same. stocks. Same for you? Like, but... Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I was, tw- I was young. That's the other thing. I'm still young. So even though I do have a family now and I am becoming more conservative, but um, relatively young and have a lot of, more uh, a few more decades of working ahead of me so I, I can feel like i can take these quote-unquote risks right now but <laughs> as time comes on as a, a block more blocks are produced it becomes less risky in my mind so um, i was talking to a friend of mine today um who was asking me about it and um you know he was trying to rebalance the portfolio and, and put some put some money to work and he's like yeah but it's too risky it's too risky I'm like, mate, look at it the other way. But like I think it's riskier to not own Bitcoin. Yeah, no, it's, it's another one of my, uh, the sayings that's been out there. Like, it, I think it has hit in that point where not even having, a, like, not having a little skin in the game is riskier than, than anything you can do right now. Because even if it's, half a percent of your portfolio the again going by tab and barbell returns like it could significantly improve uh your portfolio and again this is probably a product of me working at the managed futures fund too is that's sort of what we sold and so i was sort of attuned to these type of investments uh crash uh insurance if you will that's what we sold ourselves as uh when when equities and uh, the traditional, or excuse me, when equities are going to shit and your high risk investments are going to shit, managed futures and Bitcoin, in my mind, would fall into that as well. Um, is there to sort of make up uh, for those losses in, in those cases? So when all that stuff's going down, things like gold are are pumping. Um, it's uh, it'll be beneficial for your portfolio and help reduce risk overall. Yeah, man. Well. Very, very well put. And uh, is there anything, um, anything you want to leave? Um, any, any leaving thoughts? How can people? Um, first of all, how can people find you if they haven't already? Uh, I urge everybody to go and find Marty. Yeah, you can find me at Marty Bent on Twitter, um, and then tftc.io is where I put a lot of my content, most all of my content. Um, uh, Tales from the Crypt, uh, a Bitcoin podcast on. Uh, any of your on your local podcasting network, whatever you like to use, we're on everything. Um, yeah, it's uh, mainly on Twitter. My DMs are open. If you ever want to ever want to chat, I try to get to all of them. Cool. Well, and you know, it's true because I reached out to you via DM, and here we are having this conversation. And uh, I really appreciate <laughs> you taking the time to. Uh, you know, it's 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 humbling right it's a very brand is a brand new podcast and people like yourself and uh, and others who have agreed to come on and, uh, and talk to me and share their thoughts um it's it's amazing it's um it's been a, a baptism of uh of fire i gotta spread the word of satoshi yeah any uh more touch points the better 
exactly <laughs> that's exactly what we're trying to do right just spread the word just little by little pill by pill yeah all right well, <laughs> orange pill by orange pill <laughs> marty thank you so much for your time really appreciate it and uh have a great week thanks dan i really appreciate having me on it was a lot of fun Hey guys, uh, thank you so much for listening and uh, thanks again to Marty for uh, agreeing to come on the show. Um, really amazing of him to support uh, a new podcaster. Uh, it's really um, it's really great to see that in this community actually that uh, many people you you reach out to are, are, they're straight back they're straight back at you. Um, it's uh, an amazing community to be a part of. I, I feel as though I've been accepted very very quickly and. Uh, I hope um, interviews like uh, like this one will um, keep going a long way to helping people uh, keep educating themselves or start educating themselves around what Bitcoin is and how it could positively impact their their future lives. And um, you know, uh, Marty and I got uh, talking there about uh, how difficult it is for for people of his age to come out and, and start saving and. Uh, I think that's something that gets really underestimated um, from older generations. Um, so, you know, please take that into account next time you're, you, you know, you're thinking about um, that and um, thinking about like the next 10 to 20 years and whether this um, alternative option, can you afford to keep ignoring it? That's, that's the question. Um, I hope, um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, had great fun with Marty. Uh, I can't do his uh, as well as he can, but I loved the uh, the story around that. Thanks for sharing that, Marty. <laughs> that was brilliant. Um, I hope you all had fun, and um, sorry for the like the the weird interlude in the uh, in the first like twenty minutes. I think it was where I just couldn't work out where that noise was coming from, and uh, it was obviously coming from the the desk Marty was leaning on, and uh, he'd forgotten to plug in his. Uh, um, earbuds so that the mic was a little bit um off uh i checked with him and he said nah leave that in whatever you know <laughs> that's fine that's all good stuff people are like that the freaks are like that um so yeah there you go uh, that was raw and uncut i uh, hope you enjoyed it take care everybody have a great week and uh thanks for listening